Welcome to Grazing Grass Podcast, episode 78. Just start with whatever resources you have, whatever problems come along, find a creative solution. And if you just think outside the box, you can generally get most things done. You're listening to the Grazing Grass Podcast, helping grass farmers learn from grass farmers. And every episode features a grass farmer and their operation. I'm your host, Cal Hardich. You're growing more than grass. You're growing a healthier ecosystem to help your cattle thrive in their environment. You're growing your livelihood by increasing your carrying capacity and reducing your operating costs. You're growing stronger communities and a legacy to last generations. The grazing management decisions you make today impact everything from the soil beneath your feet to the community all around you. That's why the Noble Research Institute created their Essentials of Regenerative Grazing course to teach ranchers like you easy-to-follow techniques to quickly assess your forage production and infrastructure capacity in order to begin grazing more efficiently. Together, they can help you grow not only a healthier operation, but a legacy that lasts. Learn more on their website at noble.org slash grazing. It's N-O-B-L-E dot org forward slash grazing. Be sure and listen in the upcoming events for grazing courses coming near you. On today's show, we have Aaron Prince. We talk about multi-species grazing, also doing it in California and then ending up South Dakota, travel across the country. Great episode. And I have to say thank you to Aaron. Uh, due to some technical difficulties, we had to record this twice. So we'll talk to Aaron in just a moment. For 10 seconds about my farm, again, we, we bring up weather. We got a little bit of rain. There's been a light frost around. Hasn't been too bad here, but I know some people have gotten a little bit heavier frost than we have. My parents live in a lower area near a creek, and, and they are always a couple degrees colder than I am. Also, anytime this frost or freezing comes up, got to be careful with Johnson grass. So if you're out there, get a frost, you got Johnson grass, might want to get tested. I saw someone on Facebook from Oklahoma got theirs tested, and it showed it was high in perusic acid right now so and it sounded like they'd got a frost so i'm not sure but you be careful anyway i'm enjoying the cooler weather it does make me sad that the growing season will be slowing way down and enjoying the fall temperatures or autumn temperatures right now anyway enough of that let's find out what's on the calendar let's talk to aaron aaron we want to welcome you to the grazing grass podcast we're excited you're here today yeah, thanks for having me on. I'm excited to be here. Aaron, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your operation? Sure. So I technically am a first-generation farmer. My family does have some history. Uh, most of my grandparents all grew up on farms, but they were all kind of the first generation off the farm as well. So and there's no, oh, yeah. uh, no family land to return to or anything like that. And I got my I start raising animals uh, with 4-H and I'm working on other family friends farms in Southern California where I grew up. Then I attended Cal 
Cal Poly San Luis Obispo, and I got a degree in animal science. And while I was working there on campus, I worked at the swine unit and the poultry unit and milked cows for a summer at the dairy. And then once I graduated, I spent most of my career post-graduation in the commercial pork industry. I did have a brief stint with working on an organic dairy farm that had a large pastured laying hen operation as well. And then in 2019, I got the opportunity to get my own sheep. And so that's kind of where Prince Pasture started. And we started in the Sacramento Valley of California. And then in September of 2021, we moved to South Dakota. So that kind of is the... Oh, very good. I want to jump way back. Uh, I, I won't say way back. If we were jumping back to days when for 4-H or FFA for me, that would be way back. It's not near as far for you. You were, did 4-H. So what did you do in 4-H and what attracted you to 4-H? Well, I'm actually, I was a fourth generation 4-H'er, so I don't know that I had a lot of choice. My parents signed me up. I showed pigs and poultry and beef cattle in 4-H, and I was in it for about 10 years, I believe. 4-H is a, a tremendous uh, organization and always happy to see kids participating in it and all the things they provide. I did not do 4-H. We did FFA. Same type of thing, except you start a little bit later, but I showed dairy cattle. I was not one of the smarter people because I spent too much time on a dairy farm, and it sounds like you only spent a little while on a dairy farm. Yeah, that, that's true. We do have a family milk cow now, even though I had told my wife I'm never milking anything again, and here we are. Funny how that happens. So you went, so you decided you wanted to get an animal science degree. What? made you want to do that? Was it the time in 4-H? Was it your grandparents' farms? Uh, I would say 4-H had a lot to do with it. And then in high school, I had worked on our friend's dairy farm. I didn't really, I did a lot more feeding and stuff with hay with them. And then I also worked on a pig farm in my hometown that raised pigs for biomedical research. So it wasn't even agriculturally related at all, but it was still working with animals. So yeah, still working with livestock, yeah. Exactly, yep. And so those kind of things, I, I knew I, I wanted to be in agriculture. I wanted to work with animals, and I really, pigs are my favorite species to work with. So the, those were all kind of the reasons that led me towards an animal science degree. So so you, you got your animal science degree, and I have a suspicion regenerative agricultural practices weren't covered in great detail there. No. At the time, there was one instructor, and he actually was teaching the only holistic management class at a college level. And so I did get exposed to it there. And then even before that, in early high school, my mom had come across Joel Salatin's books, and she actually had sent me out to Virginia um, for a week all by myself. I was only maybe 14 or 15 years old. And so those were kind of the things that had exposed me to holistic management. As I mentioned in the beginning, I worked on that organic dairy as well, and they utilized holistic management practices too. So even though it wasn't covered a lot in my animal science curriculum at all, I did have some exposure as well. Yeah, lots of other exposure. Now, when you went out to Virginia, did you go Polyface Farm and spend a week there? Yeah, I did. Like I said, I think I was only 14 or 15, and I can't believe my parents just sent me across the country by myself, but it all worked out. Here I am. I'm still here. So. I'm sure you were thinking I am plenty mature enough to do this. 
And I'm sure as your kids get to that age, you'll be like, what were they thinking? But that was a amazing opportunity for you to go out there and spend a week out there. Yeah. Yeah. I learned a lot and it was definitely a good experience. I'd been, you know, 14 or 15 years. So I don't remember every little detail, but it definitely was a positive thing for sure. Oh yeah. I, I can totally see that it would be. So you got out of college, you worked in the pork industry for a number of years. And then in 2019, you got some sheep. Yep. It's kind of a unique way that I got started. My wife was brand rep for that, that farm that I used to work for because they were launching their own milk line. And somebody came by through the table and she started talking with them. And he said, oh, I've got all these sheep. And I was, had been thinking about getting into sheep at that time. So she mentioned it to him. So he said, your husband needs to give me a call. And so I did. And he had about around 10,000 head of sheep and goats that he used for the service grazing. And so I gave him a call and we talked it over and he had a really unique way that he was trying to support young people getting into grazing. And so he, he essentially gave me breeding females. And then instead of having to pay him with cash or money in a certain amount of years, I had to pay him back a 20% interest in breeding females. So he had to get his initial group of, of ewes back and he needed to get some new lambs back as well to, to equal that 20% interest. So once that opportunity was presented to me, I didn't think there was any better way of, of getting started with low capital. And so we just went for it. I would love to talk a little bit more about that if you're open to it, because that is a very novel approach to to help a young farmer get started, because having the capital to buy breeding stock is often one of the hindrances, one of the, the um, hurdles a young farmer has to come across. So... He provided you breeding stock, and then you paid him back with you lambs you had raised until you paid off the original investment plus the interest. Yep, that's correct. And then because of us moving to South Dakota, we paid him back in all one big chunk, which was kind of the way he wanted it. He wanted to, instead of keeping annual records of how many you lambs I'd paid him back, he wanted me to grow the herd, his flock as fast as possible, and then pay him back. So that was, we basically kept every single female that, that we had just to make sure we could fulfill our end of the agreement. Oh, yes. So, so he didn't want a, a percentage or anything of each lamb crop. He just wanted you to, to build your herd till you got to the point that you could give him or return to him a certain amount of breeding stock. Exactly. Yep. Very interesting. And how many ewes did you get to do this? So the first year, I only had 20. And then he kept pushing on me to get more. So then the second year, I got an additional 25. So then I had ended up having 45 ewes. And so then we, we got going with that. So we had over 100 head of, of sheep total, ewes and lambs combined, once we kind of got going before we moved here to South Dakota. Very interesting. I, I love the creativity of that approach, excuse me, and the desire to support young farmers getting started. There may be complaints that, well, the interest rate or whatever, but people have to make money. And I think that was a great way for for you to get some animals and get going with good breeding animals. Now, what land were you running them on at that time? So we had found a, a, a leased farm and it was a, the part we were on was a 20 acre uh, walnut orchard that had mostly been taken out of production, essentially. And so it was really overgrown, really weedy, but it was perfect for feeding sheep. And so uh, that was kind of our home, our home base. And then 
Um, we also would go and do a little bit of the service grazing on a much smaller scale. So um, generally we did just private landowners. Um, so a couple of examples of projects we did. One was uh, basically a hay field at this one house and it had been hayed for years and it was also getting overgrown with yellow star thistle, which is an invasive plant out there. And sheep will actually eat that, especially in the early growing stages of that plant. And so we brought our sheep over there to, and we timed it right so that we could knock back that yellow star thistle. And so they wanted that, that controlled and they also wanted some fertility put back into the land there. And then we also did one that was a, an in-production almond orchard. And we, or, oh, it was another walnut orchard actually. And they had planted cover crops in between the rows of the trees and they wanted sheep to come in and manage that so they didn't have to mow it. And so that was a really good opportunity for us. And it was great feed and it gave us a chance to rest our lease farm after we'd irrigated and it worked out really well for us. And then our, one of the other projects we did was our whitewater rafting camp and they had a, this huge island and it was about 70 acres and they were very concerned about fire risk. And so we got to graze that property as well. So we had our home base and then we also would try to get out and be as mobile as we could uh, for a small operation. Right. And that's a very creative approach to provide that service to other landowners so that it increases basically your land base so you can run more animals. I assume with that, Aaron, that in California, the, that service is more more common than maybe here where I am. Yeah, it's definitely becoming common. And probably the main reason would be to try to reduce some of the fuel loads for wildfires, which would be the main reason. And I think most of the, the crop farmers in California are fairly progressive, I would say. So I think you're starting to see a lot more livestock integration into crop fields as well. Now, when you got those first sheep, did you start um, regenerative practices of rotational grazing them? Or how did you get started? Yep. So we did rotational grazing. Um, that, that leased farm had no perimeter fences since it was a walnut orchard. And so we started out with electric netting and we just rotated them every day or every couple of days, depending on the season. And then we would sometimes have to get them out of there when we irrigated, since we did flood irrigation for the most part. And so we didn't want to have the sheep on, Oh yeah, you know, with the water running and the sheep being in there and soil compact and all that kind of stuff. But yeah, we definitely did ro um, rotational grazing right from the start. Yeah. Utilizing electro netting, which works out really good for that. Did you, at the time, use any um, livestock guardian animals, or did you rely upon the electro netting to provide security? We did get a llama, and we were in an area, I think, that actually didn't have a lot of predator risk but at the lease farm. And so the llama worked really well for us for the most part. That one <laughs> island I mentioned at the, uh, the whitewater rafting camp, we were in the middle of a drought when we grazed there. And so eventually, I think it was the county or maybe it was the neighboring Indian reservation. They actually dammed up the creek and then that made it so that predators could get across. And we found, we're pretty sure it was a mountain lion because lambs were just disappearing. And the, the llama wasn't very effective against the mountain lion, obviously. So, yeah, but it, the llama definitely did a great job against any sort of canine. We never had any coyote pressure or dog pressure or anything like that. Oh, yes. Yeah. And, and I'm sure the llama looked at you very judgy every time he saw you. Yeah, he wasn't the, uh, he did his job, but he was not very friendly. I have a llama with my animals and he just, or she just cracks me up. And whenever I 
whenever she wants to, she can be tame and she'll come up and eat out of my hand and stuff. Majority of the time, she doesn't decide it's worth her time. And she just kind of um, looks at me judgy. And I have moved her with the pickup before because sometimes she's just somewhere else, so she doesn't like the pickup. So if I want her to come up to me, I have to be away from the pickup. She's interesting. It's just an interesting animal. And I think, in fact, continue on that. I have a, a friend, a coworker, that comes and fishes at our ponds here. He refuses to come if, as he words it, that animal is out there. So he will tell me, and I'll have to tell him, well, the llama is here or here, and he is not going to a pasture that the llama's in. I would say I have been impressed with my llama on, on coyote, with coyotes. I wasn't sure for a long time, but I've seen her in action a time or two. I was impressed because I wasn't sure she was even paying attention to the sheep and everyone else, but she is. She's always alert. The biggest problem with her, she is worse than a horse or donkey about knowing when a gate's open, and she will get through it. Yeah, that sounds about right. In fact, yeah, in fact, I thought about, I thought it'd be funny, and I'm I'm not going to do it because I don't have enough time, but I thought about, you know, TikTok's all about crazy stuff. I thought... It would be great for every time I go through a gate to video it and see the um, challenge between the llama and myself. Because part of the time I win, part of the time she gets out and I got to put her back in. Anyway, enough about llamas. So you you had your Dorfer crosses in 2019 and then you decided to move to South Dakota? Yep. There was a lot of reasons why we decided to move from California. But kind of the, the more agricultural reasons, one would be that we want to be able to afford land, and that was not really something we could afford in California. And then also was the lack of water. We had been through some of them were really good wet years, and we had plenty of irrigation water. Some were dry years, and then in California, there's lots of politics involved in water, and uh, sometimes the supply isn't reliable for that reason. And so... As we were looking at places to move, we wanted to make sure that it rained during the growing season. That was kind of one of the requirements. And yeah, a lot of things kind of shook out the right way and we ended up in South Dakota. So, Did you look at a variety of other places or were you like South Dakota is a great choice? We had uh, almost bought a a chicken farm in Montana, like a cage-free layer operation. We put in an offer and that didn't work out. Um, we had kind of looked a little bit at Oklahoma and Tennessee, I guess, looked online only at Kansas, and then uh, things kind of worked. I needed to have a full-time job, and so things worked out here to come to South Dakota on that front. So, And are you working in South Dakota in the pork industry still yet? Yep. Yeah, I manage a swine teaching and research farm for a university out here. Oh, okay. Very good. We don't have too many hog farms around me, but I know if you go to western Oklahoma, there's a fair amount out there. Okay. So you moved to, to South Dakota. Before you, you moved, you um, paid back your breeding stock loan, kind of, and then you moved to South Dakota. Did you move any sheep with you, or did you get new sheep there? We got new sheep, and we also did do a little bit of a different direction, too. So, yeah, I paid back my original loan on those, those breeding stock ewes, and then I had, I think, about 30 lambs left and so I sold them to somebody else that was kind of had a similar arrangement with me with that the same 
grower who had the large number, but he had quite a few. He was a rice farmer. He was, I think he had four or 500 heads of ewes and he was trying to diversify and grow his herd. So I sold the remainder of my flock to him. And then we moved South Dakota in fall of 2021. And we bought our farm here in December of 2021. And we decided we didn't want to overwinter animals in our first winter here or anything like that. And so we waited till spring of 2022 and we bought seven bred ewes and a ram lamb. And then we bought an additional 20 open ewe lambs as well. And so we lambed out those first seven in May of 2022. And then we, we carried those ewe lambs all the way through to December of 22 and then we started breeding them at that time so our first lamb crop out of our 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 ewe lambs was this year oh yes how did you find that first winter in south dakota you've been in southern california so it's a big change i'm sure I, i guess i didn't mention my first job out of college was in iowa so we had at least had a little bit of experience with winter um but it was very very cold we didn't get that much snow altogether but there's you know weeks at a time where it never got above zero in january and february so that definitely was still an adjustment from from california i'm sure it was i think for me even going to south dakota would be a big adjustment and we're not as warm as southern california so yeah i have family up in the dakotas but they usually come down here to visit rather than us going north sure especially in the winter when you got the sheep in south dakota did you go back with Dorpers or did you go with a different breed? We actually couldn't find any Dorpers. And so we, we went with Katahdins. And I have heard, I don't know how true this is since I haven't raised Dorpers in South Dakota, but we've heard that the Katahdins do better over the, the harsh winter. They have a thicker hide. And so they just tend to do a little bit better. People do have Dorpers here. I just haven't raised them here in South Dakota yet. But Katahdins have been fairly easy to keep over the winter. So when you got that property in South Dakota, was it set up with water for your for sheep or do you all have to do any infrastructure to get it ready for sheep? We didn't have to do very much. The The people that had this before raised show sheep. So most of the infrastructure was kind of already set up. We have a little bit of limited water infrastructure, I would say, for being a mobile operation. And then the other challenge we've run into is we have really good five wire barb fence that, that keeps in cattle. But the Arcatadans seem like they will still manage to get out of that, even if they have plenty of grass. And so we've kind of, even though we have great perimeter fences, we still have to run the netting because they just seem like they, they won't stay in anything else. I, I have been uh, pleasantly surprised by Arcatadans. I mean, over time I have. Here lately, I haven't been too impressed because we have five wire bob wire fences for, for part of our perimeter fencing as well as interior fencing. And while they go between interior pastures on their own, we've, they have additionally, or for a number of years, stayed inside a perimeter fence. Now, I say that just the other day I was leaving to go down my dad's. We had some ram lambs down there, and they'd gotten out because we would put them into a new pasture, and it wasn't tight enough. I go to pull out, and I look over on my neighbor's property, and there is 150 head of ewes. So... <laughs> Headed over, got got them back in, and they'd found a spot on that fence that they're going under. So we've got to put another wire there. And that's typically what we've done, and it works reasonably well for that. But there's not a lot of pressure, but, you know, they had no reason to get out. They just saw the opportunity and took advantage of it. And with the Katahdins, 
You you got started with that. Did you introduce any other livestock to your farm? Yep. So we did. We also did some custom grazing on some beef cattle. We had the first year we had eight pairs come graze and we had had so much grass that first year. We had a very wet spring in, in 2022. I felt like we had way more grass than our sheep could handle. So we, we brought in those cattle and then we also got some laying hens as well. So that first year we didn't have very many. It was just enough for our, our family essentially. And then we've added quite a few laying hens since. And so I think we're up around 70 or so laying hens. Oh, yes. And do you have them in a mobile coop or a stationary coop? Uh, mobile, yep. So we uh, we move them every three to four days, and we built two of those Darby Simpson, kind of like the hoop house, mobile hoop house ones. I also built a, another one this year that's much bigger, and I think I'm going to convert that into my lane coop just because it's more room to walk around and I'll have a lot more space. And instead of having to move two coops side by side, I'll just be able to move one with the same amount of birds. So next year, that'll make us more efficient. The Darby Simpson coops have been good. They've, they've been durable. They've withstood a derecho that we had with 90 mile an hour straight line winds. They didn't even flip over or anything like that. So I've been pretty impressed. They're, they're a good solid coop. Yeah, very good. And you also did custom grazing with some pears. How did the custom grazing go for you? Went really well. We, we enjoyed having the cattle other than one cow that sometimes liked to go under the poly wire. They all stayed where they needed to. And then that first year, we uh, were able to even run the sheep in with the cows. So we did like the, the flirt, you know, and that worked really well. And then this year, we brought seven yearling bred heifers back and they did not like the sheep at all. And they ran them off the one time we tried to put them together. So this year, we didn't run a flirt just because of the animal behavior that we saw. But it's been good to have multiple species. Very good and very interesting. You were able to do it one time, but not so much the other time. Do you have a a preference for the heifers versus cows? You know, the years were so different. So the, the guy that we bring the cows from, his cows are really tame. And even his, his heifers were a little bit squirrely, but not bad, really, all things considered. But we had so much less grass the second year with a much drier spring that I, I'm glad we had bred animals as opposed to lactating cows here. So I don't think we would have been able if he had said he had bread or lactating cows, I don't know if I would have actually brought him on this year just because of the difference in forage, the amount of forage that we had. So, And he's pretty flexible on when he brings them and when, when they need to get picked up. So it's a, it's a good arrangement for us. Oh, it, it sounds like it is because, you know, that spring flush of grass, when you get all that coming on and stuff, you need more animals. But you have to be careful that you don't have too many animals or you're hurting yourself later in the year. Yeah, exactly. So that's been kind of a, a balancing game that we've been trying to learn. And that first year, we'd never seen a, a spring flush like that before since our growing season is so short here in South Dakota. So that was a big learning experience for us as well. Definitely so. Now with the jumping a little bit back to the the sheep and chickens, what's the plan and how's it going for marketing with that, with those species? Yeah, so the eggs are definitely been our, our best part of the operation so far. We have quite a few families that buy eggs from us weekly, and we recently got into the farm store. I had to get my um, candlers and dealers license, and which was actually very simple. So now we can sell anywhere retail. So we need to, as we try to grow the laying hen operation, hopefully I can find other stores and different customers that I could sell to that way. 
we've been told that there's a very strong de- demand for lamb in our area. Last year, the, we had uh, 10 lambs, and outside of one or two of them, I wasn't comfortable putting my name on them as a, a product, I guess, when I'm direct to consumer marketing. So we did sell one. The, the customer was very happy with it, and then we just took the remainder to the sale barn and sold them that way. So we're going to aggressively market this year for lamb shares, I think, and we'll see see how that goes. So we're kind of in development on that. Oh, yes. So what's your plan there? You mentioned lamb shares. So you're selling a whole lamb, half lamb, or tell me what you mean by that. So yeah, we would sell either a whole lamb or a half lamb. And with, with lambs, just the way they cut the carcasses and things, you can't really get into quarters or anything smaller than a half is what we've learned. So we did quite a bit of direct marketing in California. So we kind of learned what works and what doesn't work out there. And we'll, we'll see how that goes here. We're also kind of kicking around, maybe trying the farmer's market next year when we'd need more than just eggs to sell there. So maybe we'll try to sell some cuts that way if we do decide to use the farmer's market. So. Now, have you started any pastured chicken or are you just focused on the layer part? We raise broilers just for ourselves. If somebody wanted some, we might sell a couple, but it's definitely not just personal use mainly. And I'm, I'm making the assumption here, you know, you'd mentioned pigs are your favorite, but because you work on a pig farm, you're limited by what you can do on your own farm with pork or pigs. Yep. Yeah. I'm not allowed to have any of my own swine, unfortunately. So someday I'd like to get to that point, but not right now. I know we, I say we, my dad put in chicken houses late nineties and I had a home flock of chickens that I had to get rid of because I live on the same farm. We now use those barns to store hay in, which gives us a tremendous advantage on our quality of hay. During that chicken time, I couldn't have chickens. Now, when you, you mentioned something earlier that really doesn't probably fall into too much of our conversation, but something that makes me always curious, you have a family milk cow. So how are you managing her and how are you using the milk? Yep. So the milk is mainly just is just for us. So we kind of at the beginning when she first calved, we did calf sharing. So every night we would put the calf with her or no, we we switched it in the morning. I'd put the calf with her and then overnight I'd milk her in the mornings. And we basically just keep her on grass and I only give her a little bit of grain while I'm milking. So we're, we're not trying to maximize production in any way. And we, do, and we were able to do once a day milking that way. And so then over last winter, we completely pulled the calf away from her and we were feeding relatively low quality feed to the sheep and she was in there with them as well. And so we were able to actually maintain once a day milking because we weren't pushing it from a nutrition standpoint. And so we've we've basically been able to continue to do that. And then I, instead of uh, getting up real early in the morning before work to milk, we ended up kind of flipping it. So now we milk in the afternoons, which has been much better, I would say. The getting up at 4.45 in the morning in the middle of winter didn't really appeal to me. So that's when we decided to switch, switch to afternoons. So, Right. And are you the milk hand? Yep. I do all the milking. Somehow my wife wanted the cow and I'm stuck, uh, stuck milking. And I had, like I had said before, I said I've never milked anything again after my dairy experience. And here I am. So I would love to have a few milk cows or milk goats or milk sheep, uh, dairy sheep. I played with the idea. I don't think I have time. So I'm not, so it's not something I'm pursuing at this point. But maybe I have a goal of having a few milk cows later on to make cheeses. 
that's that's something I dream about. And every once in a while, my wife will be like, you buying some heifers? Because I see what you're looking at on your computer. I'm like, no, not yet. I'm just daydreaming. So getting out there, getting started with your your farm, what was some of your challenges you had? Yes, I mentioned the spring flush. And so that was kind of more of a good problem to have, but that was definitely a learning experience. Uh, Probably the biggest challenge that we ran into was just learning how to keep animals over winter and especially a really harsh winter. This past year, we had so much more snow. We were fortunate fortunate enough to have several blizzards as well, with one of them bringing in uh, air temps with the wind chill at like negative 45 to negative 50 and blowing snow all around. So one of the things that I had initially thought is I didn't, don't have any heavy equipment. So I thought I was limited to small square bales. And we went through those a lot faster than I anticipated. And so I looked at the economics on buying round bales. And then once I realized how much more cost effective that was, I decided I would just do it and then figure out a way to move the bales once I got them. And so... Uh, What I ended up doing was taking a T-post and driving it through the the center of the round bale. And then I put toe straps uh, on my four-wheeler and then wrapped those around the T-post. And I was able to just drive that bale almost anywhere I needed to. We had some limitations where with some of the deep snow, I got as far as I could. And then that bale just had to stay stay where it was. And then the other challenge we, we ran into was I was a little bit late on protein and not as consistent as I should have been throughout the winter. And so towards the end of the winter, probably February, March, we started noticing the ewes were losing like patches of their wool and it wasn't warm enough for the the hair sheep to be shedding. And so after a little bit of research, turns out that we're 99% sure that was wool break. And so that is one of the main things that you see with wool break would be a protein deficiency. And so it ended up not being a wreck, thankfully, and we still had good, good, healthy lambs and all those things, but we definitely learned a lesson there that uh, we got to have some sort of protein supplement regularly throughout the winter. Oh yeah, monitor that. Yeah. And that's a very creative way and low cost way of feed hay. Very good out of the box thinking to get that going. Yeah. Sometimes you don't have a lot of options, so you just use what you got and and hope it works. So I tell people all the time, I, I can remember, I've got a a trailer, or I used to have a trailer with a sliding rack to hold hold my sheep. We'd get to the cell barn, and the people would be like, you're going to have to open this. We all know how. I, I just tell them, my grandpa always said, poor people have poor ways. And that's just the way it is with me. With the, Those were your challenges. What were some successes you've had? Well, we've had a good, a good lambing crop. Uh, we've had about 150% lambing crop this year, so that's been encouraging and they've been growing really well this year the laying hens and the customers we've gotten through that has also been been very successful and i think the other part that we're i would say is a success is that we're uh, starting to see some warm season grasses already establishing themselves just in this first year since we've been doing it i don't know how much of that is related to management or to the amount of rain that we got this summer as opposed to last summer but i know that we're seeing Grasses like side oats, grandma, and a big blue stem that we didn't see at all last year. So that's been encouraging. Oh, very good. Yes. Yeah. As you think about the future for your farm, what's your plans? Well, we're, we're trying to decide kind of what our main, I think the chickens is going to be our main operation, I would say. So we're trying to decide if we 
want to cut back on the amount of ruminants we have. So whether that's where we keep sheep only and we don't bring back the custom cows and maybe I'll be able to stockpile some more grass for it in the fall and maybe we won't have to eat quite as much hay. So I think that's kind of the way we're leaning right now is using this, the lambs to just manage the grass for us and then kind of making the chickens the main operation, the laying hens. So I think that's kind of the direction we're leaning. Four kids and we homeschool and so... We've been very busy and we just know that we need to cut back in some certain areas. So we're trying to decide what our, our best plan of attack will be for next year. So Oh yeah. Yeah. Are you all looking to expand your, your land base? I'd like to eventually come across some lease opportunities. Things are fairly competitive and I need to get into some maybe some local grazing schools and things like that to make some more contacts with local producers and see if there's some opportunities. But I would like to. There's, I mean, we're surrounded by cropland without fencing. And so if we could come up with a plan to try to get on some of that, I think there's definitely opportunities. You know, something I've thought about that I don't have it figured out, and maybe our listeners can help with this. When I look around, there's not much crop land where I am in Northeast Oklahoma. You can go to the west and find some. You can go to the east and find some crop land. But none right here where I am. It's all pasture land and everybody runs beef cattle. And I've often thought if I could figure out a model that I could, you know, I'd have to convince them first that it's not going to hurt their their beef grazing. It's actually going to help them because sheep's got a little bit different of a, a diet. But I haven't ever figured that out well enough to um, approach anybody about doing that yet. It's just something ruminating in my mind. Maybe one of these days I'll figure it out. Yeah, I've had the, the exact same thoughts. And someday I'd like to be self-employed and I have to work off the farm anymore. And I think if you can get the right model with that type of operation, I think that's the way to go. If you can make the right connections and find the right producers that want to collaborate. Yeah. Yes, I agree. Aaron, before we get to the overgrazing section, is there anything else you'd like to add? Not that I can think of, no. All right. Well... It's time for us to switch gears just a little bit. We're going to go to the overgrazing section where we take a deeper dive into something about your farm. And we're going to talk a little bit more about multi-species grazing and disruption. Yeah. So, like as we've been talking, I have three different species here on the farm. And I first got kind of introduced to the idea of disruption with a, a Dr. Alan Williams article in the Stockman Grass Farmer. And so he had kind of talked about all the different positive disruptions that you can do. And so some of the ones that I've tried to implement is starting grazing on different parts of the farm at the beginning of the year. And so like for an example, I had one of those beef cattle came in the first year, they started at the far northeast part of our farm. And then this year when they came in, they came all the way to the, the, the southeast part. And then we kind of worked opposite directions of last year. And then the sheep I This year with the sheep, I ran the sheep across the entire farm before the cows got here and just kind of clipped all the plants to try to manage that spring flush a little bit better. Before I was managing the sheep, <clears throat> kind of how I did in California, that, oh, they can stay here for another day or two days or something. And with that spring flush, the whole farm completely got away from me. And so, we, yeah, trying to do different things is a positive disruption, different size paddocks, different directions of paddocks from last year. I did more back fencing this year, just making alleys back to water for the cattle as opposed to trying to move the water station. So I've done several different things in that regard. 
And then kind of some other parts of disruption, I don't know if they're necessarily in the article, but sheep and cattle are dead-end hosts for each other's parasites, so that's a way we're disrupting the parasite cycle. And then also, same thing with, with the chickens, if we rotate them behind the cattle, they scratch through those cow pies and they get the fly numbers down, eating those larvae and those types of things. I'm hoping next year we'll see the, the positive results from all the chicken manure on the pastures. We haven't really seen it this year, but it's gotten very dry here lately, so we're not getting rain, and so that manure is not getting washed into the soil. But I'm hoping with all the different species we have, we'll start seeing some even, even more progress than we've seen so far. Now, how close are you to uh, your first freeze? Uh, we're probably just a couple weeks away. It won't be too much longer. Usually kind of mid-September, maybe that third week of September, we can get a freeze. Oh, yes. Yeah. Were you able to, and, and I'm sorry, I'm going off, I'm jumping away from the disruption just a little bit, but were you able to stockpile some forages for winter? We didn't stockpile quite the way I would have wanted to. The, the really dry spring we had kind of limited our, our growth. So we, we'll be buying hay and my, my plan is to bale graze. Uh, but this year, instead of waiting till the snow comes and trying to move the bales, I'm going to preset them and out on the pastures and kind of the spots that need the most help. And then I don't have enough netting to deal with uh, moving it throughout the winter. And then the other problem we're going to run into is with the frozen ground, I won't be able to get the, the posts out anyways. So I, I think what I'm going to try to do is set up just mobile posts with poly wire and maybe run three strands of poly wire and try to contain the sheep around the bales that I want them to graze and then try to move that throughout the winter. Because once I set those posts and it freezes, they're just going to be stuck there until spring. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Sometimes I don't have to worry about too much here. We get freezing weather stays below freezing it's only usually for a few days and then we're good so the post freezing to ground really not a issue i would even thought about yeah definitely something we have to contend with here so and then jumping back to the disruption i think that's really smart to to change up your rotations i know i try and change up my rotations but so we have my dad's farm and we have mine my dad's farm, we have permanent divisions, so we have a lot of small pastures. And I don't narrow them down with electric fence, partly because running electric fence is kind of a headache with all these permanent fences, because I got to make sure it doesn't ground out somewhere. And then I spend, I rotate my cattle a little bit faster, not a little bit faster, a lot faster than I do my dad's. So my dad's are, are more weekly rotations but we we don't ever get that opportunity to change that paddock size very much because we've got those permanent divisions in place now in the lease lands i have the ability to change it but i notice i get in habits really quickly of just putting the fence back in the same general area as i'm the larger larger division so i'll make a division then i'll i'll chop it up but that one fence i know right now on that on 75 acres i have just here not far from the house i know i put that first fence i'll do it 10 acres in that's what i always do so i i probably have to keep that in mind a little bit more as i'm out there doing stuff and not do it always the same way yeah it's definitely easy to fall into routine and remember what you did last year and depending on the land maybe there's some limitations and how you can set them up to begin with which 
some of my pastures are that way. There's a there's a creek and pretty some pretty steep hillside. So I do have some spots where I have to do it the same as last year. But if if I can do it different than last year, I really try to. So so Aaron, it is time for us to go to our famous four questions. Same four questions we ask of all of our guests. Our first question: What is your favorite grazing grass related book or resource? Well, our, our local library doesn't have very many books, and I haven't ponied up the money to buy any of the regenerative ag books. Um, but I do like the Stockman Grass Farmer. I get that every month, and then I listen to, I don't know, five or six probably regenerative agriculture podcasts while I'm working in the hog barns and on, on my farm too. So I definitely think those are a great resource. I think, obviously, I think podcasts are a wonderful resource. What are some of the ones you listen to? Um, let's see. Besides this one, uh, I listen to The Herd Quitter, Working Cows, Ranching Reboot, Raised in America. Those would be the ones I regularly listen to. There's some other ones that I kind of hop in and out of depending on what the topic is, but quite a few, like I said. I'm pretty bad about hopping in and out as I find on topics I like. There is a Pastured Pig podcast I really enjoy. It's going to be totally different than your line of work. But it, it kind of follows the same model as we try to here. So I, I find it really interesting as well. Yeah, that would be interesting and very different way of management. But I'm sure I could learn something. So Oh, oh yeah, very different. I know we had hogs when I was a kid. And we didn't manage them like hog farms manage them. But we did manage them more intensively than, we, than what I would try and do now. I kick around the idea of doing some pastured pork. But as you've already heard, just through this episode, I have lots of ideas of what I want to do. So I have to really calm down and put the brakes on stuff. Our second question, Aaron, what is your favorite tool for the farm? You know, I think it would have to be the four-wheeler. Um, like we talked about, I, I use that to move my, my round bales. I use that to use the mobile coops, uh, move the mobile coops around. I don't think I could do anything on the farm very efficiently without that tool. Very good. Thirdly, Aaron... What would you tell someone just getting started? Just start with whatever resources you have, um, whatever problems come along, get, find a creative solution. You probably have a solution that you haven't thought of that with whatever existing infrastructure, equipment, or resources you have. And if you just think outside the box, you can generally get most things done. Very good advice. And Aaron, lastly, where can others find out more about you? Uh, we just have our Instagram page so that's at prins underscore pastures and for our listeners out there we have to say thank you to aaron aaron came back on and re-recorded this episode because my technology did not want to work right so aaron i appreciate that excellent conversation thank you for coming on the podcast thanks for having me a lot of fun you're listening to the grazing grass podcast helping grass farmers learn from grass farmers and every episode features a grass farmer and their operation. If you've enjoyed today's episode and want to keep the conversation going, visit our community at community.grazinggrass.com. Don't forget to follow and subscribe to the Grazing Grass Podcast on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube for past and future episodes. We also welcome guests to share about their own grass farming journey. So if you're interested, fill out the form on grazinggrass.com under the Be Our Guest link.
Until next time, keep on grazing grass. I really hope you enjoyed today's conversation. I know I did. Thank you for listening. And if you found something useful, please share it. Share it on your social media. Tell your friends. Get the word out about the podcast. Helps us grow. If you happen to be a grass farmer and you'd like to share about your journey, go to grazinggrass.com and click on Be Our Guest. Fill out the form and I'll be in touch. We appreciate your support by sharing our episodes and telling your friends about it. You can also support our show by buying our merch. We get a little bit back from that. Another way to support the show is by becoming a Grazing Grass Insider. Grazing Grass Insiders enjoy bonus content, monthly Zooms, and discounts. You can visit the website, grazinggrass.com, click on support, and they'll have the links there. Also, if you haven't left us a review, please do. It really helps us as people are searching for podcasts. And I was just checking them. And we do not have very many reviews for 2024. So if you haven't left us a review, please do. And until next time, keep on grazing grass.